0: Welcome to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and inspires you to step into the life God has for you. For more information about our church, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com. So we're continuing on in our series in John. But before we go there, Everybody turning around in your Bibles. We'll be in John chapter 9 if y'all want to turn there. I want to give you a little bit of back history real quick. Follow along. We're going to do a quick history lesson. Um, So the year is about 700 B.C. before Christ. Um, Israel, in Israel, Hezekiah is the king at this time. And he hears that Assyria is planning to invade the nation of Israel. Now, he knows that Jerusalem, the capital, is a well-fortified city at this point. It's got a good structure. They've got a good army and all that kind of stuff. But there's one issue that they have that they are missing. There's an exception. And it's, in fact, a pretty significant one. They don't have a water source inside the city. So, per the norm, I have a graphic that I would like to show you. Um, Hezekiah commissions the digging of a tunnel. So, in this picture that's coming up right here, this is Israel, and on the side over here, where, see where it says Gihon Spring, right there on the far right-hand side? That area is called the Kidron Valley. And Hezekiah commissions a digging of a tunnel uh, markeded there by the blue line And yes, it is S-shaped, curvy, crazy And it goes 1,750 feet long Into this little thing Kind of almost in the middle But a little bit to the left there Called the Siloam Pool Now, at certain points that cavern is about 140 feet below ground level. And he commissioned this digging through solid rock. So it's pretty intense work. But it ended at this place there called the Pool of Siloam. Now, Siloam means uh, to be sent. And what got created was the next graphic... And this was a kind of an artist reconstruction of what the pool would have looked like. So it means sent because Hezekiah rerouted the water path of the Gihon Spring to get the water inside the city of Jerusalem to prepare in case any armies tried to invade. So, rerouted the water, all that kind of stuff. And what happened over the course of time is it became customary for whenever people would enter into the city of Jerusalem, they would come into the gate, they would go to the, uh, the pool of Siloam here, and they would wash Kind of as a ceremonial cleansing from the traveling that they had done, and they would wash to cleanse themselves in order to make their way up to the Temple Mount. Now, Hezekiah had no clue that he was participating with the Lord to create an event that would happen 730 years later. Now, fast forward to the year 2004, which, by the way, is almost 20 years ago. For most of us in this room, that is mind-blowing. I still feel like I need to put water in the bathtub for Y2K, and it's 2023. And when I read 2004 in my studies, I was like, that's almost 20 years ago. That is insane. I feel like it was last year. But anyway, so in 2004, the Gehon Water Company, still Israel's main source of water, they were working on a broken sewage pipe. And they start digging and in their digging trying to get to this broken sewage pipe, they accidentally began to excavate the Pool of Siloam. So this picture is a set of steps that they actually uncovered and they, you can see the pipe on the right-hand side there. That's the sewage line. Um, that's the way it is in Israel. You'll have something that's thousands and thousands of years old right beside a sewage line. It's crazy. But anyway, so they start digging. They realize that. They stop. They bring in the archaeologists and all that. And they got to carefully dig all this stuff back. Now, um, during that excava- uh, excavation process of this pool of Siloam, they also found... A set of steps called the Pilgrim's Road. That set of steps is about twenty-one hundred feet long, which leads from the Pool of Siloam all the way up to the Temple Mount, and it looks like this. Uh, once again, artist rendering, but you can see the pool at the bottom, and the route goes all the way up to. The Temple Mount, people would come in from traveling, they would wash themselves, cleanse themselves ceremonially, and make their way up to the temple to worship the Lord. Just a a quick incidental, this next picture is uh, the actual excavation process of this Pilgrim's Road. They just announced in 2023 in January that um, Israeli Antiquities is going to begin excavating the Pilgrim's Road, and this is kind of the beginning of it. You can see it's a tunnel now because it's underground. Um, The city has been built up and all that kind of stuff, so that's pretty wild. If you go to Israel, you can see that. Um, So you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with the Gospel of John? (laughs) What is the significance here? Um, I want to share with you. So in John 7, check this out, Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. In Hebrew, it's called Sukkot, and the first time that I went to Israel, I was actually there during the Feast of Sukkot, and it's super cool. Um, there's a picture, going to be here, a little graphic of these booths or tabernacles that, that they call them Sukkot. That means booth, tabernacle, that kind of thing. All throughout Jerusalem, all throughout Israel, Jewish families would construct these little tabernacles or these booths, and they will sit out under them. They'll eat food. Uh, It's a seven-day feast, and they hang out. They worship. They sing. uh, They spend time with their families today. like This still happens during the Feast of Booths, but this feast was held at the end of summer, During the dry season, at the close of the dry season, as a reminder of God's provision to the house of Israel during their wandering season, and as they were promised to move into the land of Canaan, um, that God was their provision. It was held at the end of the dry season, right before the rains came in, as a memorial, a reminder that God provides which is the rains coming in is kind of a big deal during Jesus's time because they're an agricultural society they need the water to show up so catch this during the feast each day of the 7 days the high priest in Jerusalem would lead a processional of people in Jerusalem down to the pool of Siloam. So get the graphic, the picture in your head, down to the pool of Siloam with this big golden jar. And they would be singing, praising the Lord, uh, worshiping and dancing. It was a very festive event because they're believing that the rains are coming, that God is providing. And they would take this jar and put it, uh, fill it up with water and carry it from the, the pool of Siloam all the way up to the temple. They go inside the temple courtyard area where the altar of sacrifice was. And they would pour the water Onto the altar of sacrifice. Now, this symbolized the anointing of the altar to initiate and invite God's Spirit into the place. It was an initiation or a sign act of them saying, God, we trust you. We're depleting our water sources and we're believing that you're purifying this place. Your spirit is going to come and rest again and send the rains. They would do it once each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, they would do it seven times. So catch this in John Chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. It says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, the one where they do this seven times, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, This he said about the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, the reason why Jesus did this, catch the visual. Jesus didn't go off to a corner and whisper, Hey, if anybody believes in me. During the middle of one of the most important ceremonies of their day, Jesus stands up in broad daylight in the temple as the ceremony is going on and says, I am the living water. If you believe in me, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus wanted to point the people of Israel back to multiple prophetic words from the Old Testament regarding this, but one in particular that I want to point out this morning Watch this, in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 1, it says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Jesus is saying to the people symbolically as they're making their way from the pool up to the altar. He's saying, I am that. I am the living water. Come to me, receive me, and out of your heart will flow this fountain. Coincidentally, if you go back just a few verses in Zechariah chapter 12, it talks about God pouring out his spirit of grace and mercy on Israel When Israel catch this, looks on him on whom they have pierced. Every single thing that Jesus did and everything that he said was intentional. It was imagery. It was intentional. He was wanting to pull them in to show them how he's fulfilling all of the prophetic words of the Old Testament and how he is the fulfillment of the prophetic word of a coming Messiah. Which leads us to the text that we're actually going to unpack this morning. How about that for an introduction? We've only got about two and a half more hours. You did get the email about bringing the pack lunch. So we're in John 9, just like I promised. Jesus is still in Jerusalem. This is a week to a couple weeks after the Feast of Booths or what happened in John chapter 7 where he stood up and said, I'm the living water. And in John 9, he's still in Jerusalem. Verse 1, it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born Blind. Jesus notices this blind man. Now, whenever I study scripture, one of the things that I always like to look at is something called etymology or the study of where words come from. Um, I think that's important to understand the formation of uh, these original words and languages and how we got them. Uh, so, for instance, the reason why I think this is important is let's look at the word Blind. Okay, the word blind in Greek was developed from two different words. And the oldest word essentially means to block off or to stop the flow of, like a dam. Okay, so catch the visual here. Blindness means that the flow of vision has been stopped, right? So the original word means to block off or stop the the flow of. There's also a second word, that of where we get the word blind and it means this, to puff up or to expand. So once again, catch the visual, because something is expanding, it is stopping the flow of like how a dam, it's damning the thing, it's stopping the flow, therefore blindness. Another um, figurative part of the language of when it says to be puffed up also means pride, to be proud. So blindness also is used figuratively in the sense of when we operate out of pride, sometimes there's areas of our life that we can't see properly and we become blind in that area, right? Y'all are familiar with the concept. We've said it uh, tons when we're talking about you know, ourselves and sometimes when we're gossiping about other people. So go repent of that in Jesus' name right now. I'm just kidding. Uh, But I am serious. I do that, so I'm going to repent. Anyway, somehow, uh, these guys know that Jesus, or excuse me, that this man is born blind. Now, I don't know if Jesus has had a conversation with this blind man. I don't know if, uh, maybe because he's potentially begging. Um, A lot of times, people that had infirmities were beggars. That was their Uh, place in life so maybe he's telling his story or something like that but anyway the disciples immediately move to a cause right they want to know why he's blind and they they ask is it is it his sin or is it his parents sin you see as humans we're always looking for a reason things go wrong we're always trying to assign I guess blame for lack of a better word for why something has happened In Jewish thought, if someone was born with an infirmity, it was either because of a generational sin that had been passed down, or it was because the person they believe sinned in the womb. Uh, For instance, in extra-biblical writing and rabbinical writings of this time, uh, they believe that, uh, like for instance with Jacob and Esau, the reason why Jacob was chosen... And Esau was not, is because they believed that Esau sinned in the womb. My question with this, though, is why do we always need a reason for suffering? Why do we need to assign blame to something? You see, I think because we see so much cause and effect in the natural world that that we live in, it's normal for us as humans to try to connect the dots to figure out a logical flow in an equation, you know, A plus B equals C. So Jesus gives them an explanation, but it's not the one that they're thinking of. It's neither the sin of him or his parents. So Jesus' explanation is in verse 3. It says this, look, Jesus answered them, so he's explaining to them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, there have been all kinds of attempts by theological scholars to try and explain a way how a good God could allow this man to live his life all the way up until this point blind just so Jesus could heal him. When we read the text, a lot of times that's one of the places where our mind naturally flows. So you're telling me a good God is going to allow this man to grow up blind just so that Jesus can interact with him in this moment and be healed. That's what the passage reads. It says, so that God would get glory for, his, for this moment. Honestly, to our natural selves, that's a hard pill to swallow, I mean, I'm just being real. I don't want to be that guy. (laughs) I don't want to be blind for a season of my life just so that I could have a miracle. Now, I don't have time for a dissertation on this, but I want to give you four quick things. Okay? Here's the reality. First off, God didn't create evil and by default, sin what he did create was beings that have free will. Meaning, he created beings with the capability of choosing sin, and because of that ability to choose, evil and therefore sin enters the story of humanity, right? Secondly, when we try to explain God out of situations like this, we are effectively putting ourselves in direct opposition to the whole of Scripture and to the sovereignty of God. In Exodus chapter four, when God is talking to Moses, Moses says, God, I don't want to lead the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt because I can't speak well. I'm not a good talker. And God tells Moses in Exodus chapter 4, listen to this. God says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Friends, this means that God is keenly aware Of every situation that a human will find themselves in, and he's still sovereign over it. The allowance of things outside of God's character, like blindness, because blindness is outside of his character, in him it's perfection, doesn't mean that God's not good or that he's not in charge. What that means is that he's long suffering It means that God himself is willing to bear up under the weight of sinfulness and to exist in places outside his nature so that he can interact with his people who are called according to his purposes to show the world his glory. It's what Jesus did in Philippians 2. He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but took on human form. God is willing to bear up under the sin just so that he can be with his people. It's a part of who he is. Thirdly, suffering can only have ultimate meaning when we submit it to the character and nature of God. If our hardships in the world are to have any meaning at all, God must be the most valuable thing to us. Most of our lives will make no sense at all unless we care most about the presence of the Lord. Because when we do, He gives us divine perspective on our circumstances. Have you ever been flying on an airplane? you know you're going through like that turbulent moment where you look and there's clouds left and right and it's kind of crazy and then all of a sudden boom you bust through the top of the cloud stratosphere and it's gorgeous and it's smooth sailing that's what i think about with the presence of the lord is that our body and our soul are consistently experiencing turbulence craziness going on physically, sometimes mentally, emotionally, all this kind of stuff. But when we get into the presence of God, when our spirit connects to God's Holy Spirit through prayer, through fasting, through reading his word, through being intimate with him, it's like all of a sudden, none of the turbulence matters because boom, our spirit pops through the cloud and we can see clearly for the first time that's God's divine presence that's God's divine perspective that he's giving us when God gives us his divine perspective just like Jesus had in this situation the natural miracle is secondary to the gift of intimacy that he is offering to us The gift of encountering his presence daily until his return and we walk in perfection. The physical miracle is secondary to our desire for the presence of God. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about this thorn in his side. Now, scholars have no clue exactly what that is and all the kind of stuff. There's tons of different um, suggestions or whatever, but in the passage, Paul says, I prayed three times that the Lord would remove this from me and it wouldn't go away. Watch this. God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Friends, when we're given God's divine perspective, that healing is secondary to the presence. I had the opportunity um, uh, several years ago, a friend of our families was walking through cancer, and I had the opportunity and the gift, and I do mean this as a gift, to watch her pass from death to life, And I have never in my entire existence seen someone worship the Lord. Even though their physical body is going away. This woman, as she's breathing her last breath, has her hands up. And what I was reminded by was when Stephen was stoned. And it says the heavens open up. And he said, I can see the Father. That's divine perspective. And the miracle is not physical. It's so much deeper than that. Do we want physical healings? Absolutely, praise God. But it's secondary to the divine perspective that he gives us when we submit to his presence. In verse four, Jesus says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, notice the connection here between day and light and this miracle of being able to see that's about to take place. Jesus is telling his disciples a couple different things. The the first is he says, we, meaning them and Jesus, What that also means by default is that we are invited to participate in being the presence of God in this community. In Matthew 5, Jesus tells his disciples, you are the light of the world. You are a city on a hill. That is what we are called to do here. We are invited to participate with the presence of God to bring the light of Christ into the lives of those around us. Small encouragement here, maybe a little bit of a push. Have you ever been walking through a grocery store, for instance, and you see somebody you know, and you talk for just a minute, and they say something like, I'm having a really bad week right now. You know, just things are not going well. What if you said, not, hey, I'll pray for you, see you later, but you stopped in the middle of a grocery store and said, can I pray for you right now? Whoa, scary. It might be time for us as believers to grow a little bit of a backbone and to actually put into action with our words what we read and what we believe to be true. Have you ever had a moment where maybe the Lord brings a scripture to your mind or like an encouraging word or something like that? Share it. Be bold in your faith. Scripture says we're the light of the world. Yeah, we might not necessarily be participating in like some sort of crazy miraculous thing where some blind person is able to see, but you might be bringing light into the life of a person who needs encouragement, which is just as miraculous. I can say that I've probably prayed over hundreds of people and probably can count on two hands how many I've actually seen a physical miracle happen, but I can tell you hundreds of accounts where in my own prayer time, the Lord brings a passage or a picture in my head or, hey, you need to encourage John or you need to call this guy and say something and I just do it. We need to be willing to be the light of the world. Those are the day works that God is encouraging us to be aware of. Now, verse six, it says, having said these things... Catch this. Huh. Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with mud. That's gross. I'm just going to be honest with you. I mean, can you just picture this with me? This blind guy and Jesus like, hang on one second. <laughs> Terrible. Now, there's all sorts of conjectures regarding why. Um. Jesus did this. He actually did it three times, uh, twice in Mark, once in Mark 7, once in Mark 8, and once in, here in John 9. John, uh, Jesus utilizes his own saliva to do something miraculous. But you know, I guess if someone was going to spit on me, Jesus would be the one that I'd be okay with. <laughs> you know what I mean? Now, I don't know why he did it this way, but I do think it's interesting because Specifically, uh, it's almost as if Jesus is pulling back from the Genesis account where it says God formed man out of the dust of the ground. It, it, the symbol there is, is, is God like creating with his hands. Another thing that I find interesting is that in uh, Judaism, according to the rabbis, this healing was done on the Sabbath and kneading, like kneading dough or making mud. Would, be, would have been considered work. So one of the reasons I think Jesus did it also was to stir up some controversy, to get them to push out of their own Jewish belief system. But watch this. In verse seven, Jesus said to the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent." So he went and washed and came back seeing. So Catch this. The man is sent to the very pool where just a few days earlier, the Jews witnessed Jesus declare himself to be the source of living water and the promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon those who believe in him. At this point in history, that pool had become a symbol of God bringing salvation through a promised Messiah. In the the book of Isaiah, chapter 12, verse 3, it says this, with joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah was alive during Hezekiah's time when the pool was constructed. And so this passage, this prophetic word out of Isaiah got connected to the pool of Siloam. So when they would come down with that gold jar and fill up the water, they are basically recounting this story or this prophetic word in Isaiah 12 where it says, with joy you will draw from the wells of salvation. That passage got connected to the promise of the Messiah coming to bring his spirit to pour out over Israel, over Jerusalem. That's the reason when they traveled in, they washed in this pool on their way to the temple and that's the reason why they filled those gold jars up and poured them on the altar you see jesus was wanting them to put the pieces together he was wanting them to catch the puzzle pieces and put them all together and go oh he's the messiah i get it he's literally laying out the plan of salvation and the promise of the holy spirit in the very sign acts that these religious people had been doing catch this for hundreds of years 730 years, the people of Israel had been doing these sign acts. They had done it as a tradition. The Messiah is there at this moment. He is opening the eyes of the blind, but they can't see it. Now, because of this man's infirmity, the blind man was seen as a social outcast. He wasn't in the upper echelon of the religious system of that day the religious leader saw him as a sinner because he carried the curse of blindness the funny thing is is in the spirit realm they were the blind ones <laughs> and the blind man is not only the one that gets healed naturally but he comes to faith in Christ you see that's what religious pride does to a person. In 2 Timothy 3 5, it says that there's an appearance of godliness, but it denies the power of God. Religious pride blocks the flow of God's drawing, it stops it up, it dams up. God's drawing in our lives and the result is spiritual blindness because of pride. The religious leaders got puffed up, the flow got stopped and spiritually speaking, they're blind even though they could see. They're blind to the very move of God that was right in front of their eyes. Catch this. Jesus' now word, the word that he, when he stood up and confessed in that moment, I am the fountain of living water, followed by the demonstration of the blind man being healed in the pool of Siloam, where they were believing the Messiah's coming with salvation. That was their sign act. That was their tradition. That was their history. This was a template that Jesus was showing the people of how he is imparting faith into Israel and into our hearts Jesus brings revelation he declares I'm the living word I'm the living water and then he does something he demonstrates it with an encounter it's revelation that leads to encounter the people however in this story are too busy with their traditions to be bothered by what Jesus was saying and what he was doing. Friends, catch this. Tradition isn't bad, but it is yesterday's word. Tradition is not wrong, but it's yesterday's revelation or it might even be someone else's word or someone else's revelation that we're just doing because that's the way it's always been done. I'm not saying that we don't need yesterday's revelation and that we don't need yesterday's word. In fact, we do need it. We need it to remind us of God's faithfulness. We need it to remind us of where we've been. It's important to look back over the course of our lives and see the benchmarks where God has come through. Tradition is important but not at the sake of killing the current word that the Lord is speaking to us. Jesus in this moment is proclaiming something that the Pharisees and the religious people can't even see because they're busy doing their traditions because that's the way it's always been done. Friends, we need today's word for sustenance, for direction, to push us into obedience. We need the word for today to push us into places that we may never go. In Romans 10, 17, it says, faith comes from hearing present tense, not from having heard. We need a continual flow of listening to the Lord today that leads us into a faithful obedience into whatever he says. You see, the Jews had all the elements. They had the temple, they had the altar, they had all the traditions, they had all the stuff. But they missed the Savior. They missed the presence of God. So my question as we close is this. Are you broken enough to let Jesus spit on you? Are you humble enough to listen to the Lord no matter what he says or does? If Jesus would have gone to a Pharisee and said, hey, you're spiritually blind. I need to spit on the ground, and and I'm going to do this. And he starts spitting on the ground and making mud. The Pharisee is going to go, no, 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 I don't want that. That's offensive. I don't want your spit on me. when you're broken and you know daily that you need the touch of the Lord. I'll take Jesus' spit over Jesus turning his back on me in my disobedience every day. I don't want Jesus to be disappointed in my life. And if it means I gotta let him spit on me to encounter his presence, I'll take it. I'll take whatever he wants to give me. So my question to you is, are you humble enough to receive Jesus in the way that he gives himself to you or are you so stuck in tradition or pride that you can't see him I promise you the Lord wants to press you and stretch you beyond what you're capable I don't know what y'all stories are in this room But I can promise you there's not a single person in here that is quote unquote too far gone that the Lord can't meet you where you're at. My story has been all of this in the flesh and in my soul, but thank God that he's willing to meet me in my crazy, He's not waiting on me to get it. He's like, I'll go bear up under that sin because I love you. And the crazy thing is, is when he meets us at our point of crazy sinfulness, he goes, I don't want you to stay there. That's when he begins to stretch us. That's the flesh getting burned off. The flesh burning off is not fun, by the way. But that's what the Lord wants. So, if you would, bow your heads, close your eyes. We're going to sing a song of response. Here's what I want you to do just for illustration purposes, this altar represents the pool of Siloam today it's the place where we meet our Savior that blind man had to let Jesus spit on him and then he had to go (laughs) he had to take a step of obedience in order to encounter the miraculous And so i'm not saying that there's anything mystical or magical or special necessarily about coming to this altar as much as it is a sign act of just saying hey god i want to be obedient to you so if you need a physical healing in this room come to the pool if you need a emotional or a soul healing in this room Come to the pool. Meet with the Savior. We want to pray with you. We want to anoint you. We want to believe with you. But more importantly, we want to encourage us as a body of Christ to submit ourselves to the presence of God in whatever way he asks. So, Father, seal up this word right now. And I pray that we would move and act in obedience to you. Thank you, Jesus. Their altars are open as we close in this song. Thanks for listening to the Mount Zion Wesleyan Church Podcast. We hope this message has inspired you to take a next step in your walk with Jesus. For more messages or to watch our full worship gathering on demand, visit us online at mountzionwesleyan.com.